0: Hello and welcome to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. This week we're discussing the UK Energy Security Strategy that was published in April 2022. With me to discuss that is Dr. Doug Parr, Chief Scientist and Policy Director at Greenpeace UK. Dr. Parr, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hi, nice to be here.
0: So the government published its UK Energy Strategy in April, as I said, what is your overall view on the strategy how is the government doing in terms of planning has it got the balance between the different elements right do you think
1: there were some good bits in there but there were also some some holes and some bits that we were not so keen on i think the the biggest hole i would say is that it was a strategy that was largely focused on electricity supply It wasn't looking at energy right across the economy. And of course, the whole strategy was put together as a response to the threat, security threats arising from the war in Ukraine. So this is a golden opportunity to reinvigorate the sort of things that can simultaneously solve the security problems, the emissions problems and the economic problems that affect the UK economy for a shock like this. And that's by making the economy more energy, more efficient with energy to stop the energy waste that's particularly in UK buildings has been such a drag. I mean, the UK has some of the worst thermally performing building stock in, probably, it was, probably is the worst in Western Europe. It's it's worse than quite a lot of Eastern Europe as well. So this would be a moment to have really got to grips with that and said, socket to Putin, lag your loft. But it was just completely absent. Any new initiatives were completely absent from the strategy. So that was the biggest hole. I think there were some there were some good bits, you know. It was good to see increased ambition on solar, increased ambition on particularly offshore wind and on floating offshore wind, which could be a big thing for the UK and a big thing for decarbonisation globally. We think though that the attempt to go down the nuclear route poses a number of issues, aside from the the normal issues associated that people do associate with with nuclear, where, you know, nuclear waste, the the sort of hazards, and, and particularly the costs. Many prime ministers have said they wanted more nuclear power stations, they've generally failed, and they've generally sucked up an awful lot of civil service and political bandwidth in failing to deliver it. And we haven't got time to faff around like that again. Because 2050 is not that far away and we've got to make big, big emissions cuts by the mid 2030s. That certainly isn't very far away.
0: Let's pick out a few of the things that you've mentioned and tease them out in a little bit more detail. So you started with energy efficiency and the fact this was a gap and, and things hadn't been done. You mentioned housing, amongst other things. If you were suddenly transported into Bays and became minister, what would you be the kind of things, the kind of real practical things that should be in a strategy like this in the energy efficiency area?
1: So uh, one of the things I'd do is throw a lot more at the public sector decarbonisation fund, schools, hospitals, prisons, etc. at the sort of prices we're seeing at the moment. Um, You'd have a payback on that energy efficiency really quickly and, We know that some schools are already having to think about cutting back on staff because energy bills are so high. But, you know, anything that you can put into that within reason is going to be be beneficial for the economy. Secondly, you need to, um, and I think the most efficient, effective way to do this would be to expand the eco mechanism where energy companies deliver energy efficiency measures to their customers. At the moment, that's focused on the people poor. It's funded through a levy on bills. That probably is the right way to do it now because energy bills are already so high. But again, public sector investment will lead to better outcomes in terms of the economy because that means that that's money that is being saved from just going abroad. At the moment, anything that we can save is money that stays within the UK economy and doesn't go abroad, as well as, you know, obviously these security and emissions benefits. There's the social housing decarbonisation fund, money that was promised in the the Conservative Party Manifesto that still hasn't been fully committed. So there are at least those mechanisms available. I think we've already seen that there's a reasonable amount of money in in energy efficiency in the industry. I think that's fine. But I think we also know that small and medium sized uh, businesses face many of the similar obstacles to to householders. And. We also know that things that have worked incredibly well in uh, say Germany, they've had the, uh, the state bank KFW delivering very low or zero interest loans that companies and wealthier households can actually invest in, in their building stock. And again you know the, the, we've now got the UK National Infrastructure Bank. we've, we've got so we've got the mechanism there. Uh, we should empower them to, to you know put as much money into that as actually, they can probably uh, risk assess, which, as I say, at current prices and the expected prices we're going to see. Um, we should, you know, There should be an awful lot of it. And all of that money will be paying back and making the, our economy more efficient and driving growth. So you're hitting everything that you need to hit with those kind of measures.
0: However good we are at energy efficiency, clearly we are going to have to look at low carbon energy generation Picking out some of the different things that are in that strategy, there was, for example, a focus on offshore wind, uh, increasing the target to 50 gigawatts by 2030. Do you think that the the government's targets for offshore wind are are right? And do you think we are on track to kind of deliver them?
1: It was good to see the government increase that target from, uh, from 40 to 50 gigawatts. I think that is the sort of target that is commensurate with what looks like is going to be necessary to deliver decarbonisation because, because of the, the, the overall strategy of decarbonisation, which is to um, electrify as much as we can. So um, heat and transport to be electrified as well as the potential power system. So we need a lot of offshore wind. Offshore wind is gonna be the backbone. I mean, whether whether we think there's gonna be some nuclear or some CCS or not, offshore wind is gonna be the backbone. There's no there's credible model out there that, that, says, that doesn't say that. Now, that, so it's really good that they've done that. I think what's missing is something that looks like a plan to deal with the, the really key obstacles now. And the key obstacles are firstly, the, an efficient and deliverable offshore grid. So how can we plan strategically so that we minimize the amount of cost associated with getting that power ashore? Have sufficient redundancy in the landing points that mean we have some resilience, but also get away from the current system where every individual project has to have its own individual landing point, which is driving, I think, with a bit of legitimacy, some discontent in places like East Anglia, where local communities are seeing like piles of applications for onshore infrastructure. And if we can be a bit more strategic about that and have fewer. Uh, landing points but nonetheless make the overall grid more resilient and I think that's that has got to be the right way to go I think some estimates from national grid say you'd save about a quarter of the cost we need to get a move on in in sorting that out uh, the other thing we need to do is to make sure that we're planning so that the offshore wind is in a place where it will cause minimal minimum of biodiversity impact because um, when we reach the numbers that we're talking about here, 50 gigawatts by 2030 and more beyond, probably going up to sort of 100, 150 gigawatts ultimately, um, then the potential for biodiversity in practice is quite strong. And we need to be putting them where they're going to cause minimal disruption and, and to know where they're going and to plan where they go. So that so that we do do that, and those that's all you know. You put that all together, and that's basically a spatial plan for the North Sea as to how we're going to deliver offshore wind. And I think we need to go down that route because, in the end, it's going to cost less. It's going to minimise biodiversity impact, and we are in a in a in a nature emergency as well as a climate emergency. And hopefully, we will minimise the amount of disruption and consent issues. Um, which I know that the. Uh, developers are already feeling is is troublesome.
0: And what about onshore wind? It's obviously a, going to be a lot smaller as a as, as a percentage. But do we need a, a I don't know a more permissive approach to increase the amount of onshore wind in the UK?
1: Well, we do. I think we need an approach that just treats onshore wind just like other planning applications, really, or other big planning applications, obviously. Um, at the moment, uh, onshore wind faces a more restrictive planning regime than almost anything else I could think of. And I don't see any reason for that. I should say that, that applies to England. That's not true in Scotland. And it's not really true in Wales either. So it's only in England that, that, that we have this issue. The other reason I think that we need to think rather differently about planning for onshore wind is that the onshore wind alongside solar actually has, a, has the potential for engaging communities in energy production and becoming part of the uh, a part of the zero carbon economy in a way that lots of other things kind of struggle to do so. You know, re- recon- reconfiguring the national grid and so on just doesn't have that, that resonance. And that's particularly true if, if we modified our grid arrangements so that there could be some element of local supply. There's a lot of actually that bench support for uh, what's local electricity bill. Uh, where it it would be allowed for local generators by local communities you know they'd be cheaper as well generally because renewables are cheaper and the network costs would be lower so you know and allowing that would i think open up a couple of things one it would open up a lot more demand and secondly it would engage people in the transition and making making it seem a lot more real rather than it, imagining that the the move to a zero carbon economy is something that is just being done to people it's been forced on them. Now, if you've got a wind turbine that's jointly owned by the community that's giving you cheaper energy, it's uh, rather more appealing than some company coming in and insisting they should build something there.
0: And you mentioned in the remarks that solar is also a little bit in the same kind of space in terms of potentially community. Yeah. How how good is the technology in solar at the moment? Is Is it good enough to deliver what the government think is needed
1: in in its plan? I think, um, look, there's a lot of tremendously exciting and interesting tech development going on in solar. But we also know that the existing solar panel manufacturing is now incredibly efficient. And so it's producing potentially very cheap power. Solar has got that potential for community engagement and it has got the potential to be rolled out at almost any scale you want. The thing about, I mean, the, you know, so the government targets uh, uh, something like, from memory, about 70 gigawatts by uh, 2035, which is a, you know, chunky sized target. And that would be an awful lot of generation on a on summer's day. I'd say two things about it. One is that we don't want it generating 70 gigawatts at noon and practically none at four o'clock. That's a silly way to deploy your solar. So you need some incentives to move the do something about the direction of the panel so that you have a smooth spread across the day the other thing is that we have got a really chronic skills shortage now the um, in terms of delivery uh, i mean already the solar companies are maxed out and can't get hold of people like electricians who can do the wiring up so even at the relatively modest delivery points that we've got at the moment the basic skills just aren't there now these skills are not extraordinary, but they are, it is important because, you know, a lot of them are conventional electrician skills, most if not all of them actually. But we do need to make sure that we've got the supply of uh, technically skilled people who are able to do that. And, you know, they don't need to be working on solar 24 seven or, you know, all day, every day, they can continue to do other work around, around other buildings and stuff. But we've, we've, we've got to make sure that we can move on this opportunity. And we can uh, deploy on roofs as well as you know, deploy on at uh, at field scale where it's appropriate. But uh, there's no question that if those bottlenecks are are addressed, we can deploy a great deal of solar very quickly.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about nuclear, and that is a, a, a clear increase, I guess, in in the energy strategy that's been recently been published target of 24 gigawatts by 2050, representing 25% of power production at that time. And obviously in your opening remarks, you were reflecting on the fact that that's not been very successful when promised in the past. So I guess my question is, if we don't go down the nuclear route, how do we use alternatives? And how do we yeah. also use alternatives that, that cover that kind of base load problem and the, and the problem of covering peaks in demand that you get from time to time?
1: Okay, let's let's just take this one at a time. And first thing to say is that the ultimate game plan here is to steadily drive gas out of the electricity system whilst at the same time expanding it so that electricity, low carbon, zero carbon electricity can supply the other needs as they grow in transport with all the electric vehicles and with heat with all the heat pumps that we're expecting to deploy. So it is important that we continue to grow the supply of capacity in, in renewables and in order to make that happen. So that's the backdrop. And as you quite rightly said, what that means is there are going to be periods when we do not have much wind and solar power on the system. So we're going to need some other mechanism to make that happen now you have to take this in stages because nothing answers all the problems immediately first thing we need to do is we need to be connected across the continent of europe because there may not be wind and solar at a particular point but there may well be wind and solar somewhere and the more you spread you want the greater the connectedness across europe and the more likely it is that you can manage those periods of variability in supply by supply from somewhere else. there will be periods when we are able to supply from the UK offshore wind and indeed onshore wind to other parts of Europe when it's you know it's it's windless in in Eastern Europe for example. So that's point one. The next point is we've got to be able to get better at flexing demand to meet available supply and the concept here is, that for particularly with the the new things that are coming onto the grid, like electric vehicles and like heat pumps, that we do the charging, we do the heating when we have electricity available to do that. And if there's variability in in when those things need to be done, that they don't need to do it when there's lower supply. So classically, you charge up the vehicle overnight and not at peak time when you come home. So smart charging. Smart demand also allows a maximization of the the variable renewable resource. But in the end, those things will not do the job when there are periods of, of, of low renewable availability. Storage. There are storage techniques we already know about. Pump storage, pumped hydro that is. We're seeing an increasing use of batteries. Again, they can fill in some of the gaps and they will squeeze out gas from the system because they will allow renewables to be stored and used when we need it rather than using gas peakers or gas CCGT. The thing that is actually going to have to come to the party for this is going to be clean hydrogen. Clean hydrogen uh, and the pace of development here is pretty startling. One of the good things about the British security strategy is that it increased the level of, of capacity of green hydrogen production from around about one gigawatts, it was a little bit vague before, uh, before April, to five gigawatts in the security strategy by 2030. That's good, but it has to be said, it's I'm sure it's in part a response to the fact that we see and I see across Europe Green hydrogen is developing absolutely at speed, and if we want to be a part of this, then we have got to get motoring. Spain has already staked out its uh, uh, desire to be a, a green hydrogen hub, so that, that not only do they create an awful lot of it, but they also trade in it, and that they will it, it will be this, they will have a hub and with spokes going out across Europe where, where green hydrogen is traded. Germany has got very large plans for how much capacity of green hydrogen they want to see from memory i think it's about 10 gigawatts by 2030 so from two years ago thinking this was a nascent technology we're already looking like we're falling behind now the thing about green hydrogen and just to be clear this is hydrogen that is created by running an electric current through water water with salt in it and you create hydrogen and the hydrogen can either be used in a fuel cell or it can be used in a gas turbine, and you can drive it and you can create electricity. Hydrogen can be stored. It's not straightforward to store, but you can store it, and you can use it to fill in those gaps. We're not gonna be filling in all the gaps by 2030. That's absolutely not going to be happening, but there will, I hope, be a bit that is contributing to the overall system we again will be squeeze, steadily squeezing gas out of the electricity system whilst building the capacity to service these needs of electrification of route and transport. So, you know, there are a range of things that fill in the, the spaces when particularly wind and solar, and hopefully we'll have a little bit of other things, geothermal and so on, fill in those gaps with storage after we've done the connection across Europe, after we've done demand flexing, and in the end, we come to something that can be stored for long periods, like green hydrogen mm-hmm. that, will, that will do business.
0: I guess the overall yeah. question is, when you add up all of those different elements and the demand management and, and, and so on, can you factor nuclear out of the, the overall question? Have you got enough of mm-hmm. these other things? And have you got them fast enough? And is there perhaps a need to say, well, there's a you know there's one more generation of nuclear or smrs or something so it's just it's it's yeah. not so much the theory it's really the practicality of time the practicalities time. of delivery
1: yeah. sure i mean i think it's a legitimate question i mean i think the answer can we can we do it quick enough i think the answer is going to be yes uh, we can do it quick enough partly because this is the the drive to green hydrogen is an is an international drive now we have some champions in, in the UK, like ITM Power, who's one of the biggest um, producers of electrolyzers in the UK, based up in Sheffield. You know, we've got a lot of experience in delivering uh, offshore wind, which will be an important part of the green hydrogen uh, production that we do in the UK. But as we see with electric vehicles, when, when there is an international drive to make something happen, it tends to happen a lot quicker than if you're trying to solve the problem on your own. And with the possible exception of France, the nuclear thing is something we'd be trying to solve on our own, because there isn't really that much interest across the world. I mean, yes, OK, there are people saying they're they're kind of interested. But again, history shows that people say they're interested and then, the, then the things fall away. And, you know, that's before we start on the very specifically on the, the nuclear industry's history of delay. Pinkley Point was promised originally for December 2017. If it makes December 2027, I think we'd now be thinking, well, that's kind of lucky, really. We finally made it. EDF don't think they can deliver size well until 2034. So we're talking mid-2030s for any decision now to bring more nuclear, that would deliver more nuclear on stream. and. People talk about SMRs as though they're a, they're a kind of solved problem. And, and you know, n- not even one has yet been built. It seems extraordinary that predicating the future of our electricity system on something where not even a single prototype has been built. It's very <laughs> odd. And as I say, that's before you come with the, with the sort of strategic weaknesses that you have associated with nuclear, which is things like, you know, what are we going to do with the waste? Any any nuclear site now is going to be storing, any new nuclear site rather, or site with new nuclear power on it, is going to be storing its spent fuel until well into the next century. I mean, second half of the next century, probably 20, uh, 2200. So, you know, they come with some attendant problems, which, uh, which other things don't need to worry about nobody's going to be worried about uh, what terrorists might do to a wind farm.
0: We could could talk about nuclear for a long time, I suspect, and we probably don't have time for that. So let me ask you one final question. Looking forward, a lot of what we talk about is 2030, 2040, 2050. Let's be more specific. Next two years, what should the government be doing now in order to make sure that we keep and we will get to where we need to be in 2030?
1: okay so for the remainder of this parliament for the sake of argument uh, what have they got to do well they've got to commit a load of money for energy efficiency and there are various ways that we can find that as i alluded to earlier they need to shift the planning on onshore wind and onshore renewables more generally because there's actually quite a lot of projects that are already waiting to go and given the go ahead they could do that and that's not just about planning actually that's about the cfd contracts that government could offer and, and just get them to go ahead. are uh, probably at no net cost to the uh, to the electricity bill payer, but the, there's just a revenue certainty aspect around that, which is which is the way that we've been doing renewables policy for the last uh, six years, I think. So that's that's two things. I think in the in the energy bill that's likely to be coming up coming for Parliament in the autumn, I think we need to place some obligations on off to help deliver net zero. In addition to looking at consumers. I think we need to place similar obligations on other parts of the network. So the district net uh, distribution network operators. I think we need to have a very considered conversation about what's going to happen to the gas grid, because that's a, that's a big asset, but it's actually quite hard to see that being useful in a zero carbon world. So when are we going to upgrade or not? Probably Uh, we need to have, We need to start a process about how to deal with local energy planning. Heat is incredibly local. And so we need to be able to plan locally, both in terms of building quality, about sources of waste heat that might be distributed, about whether we have district heating networks or whether everybody has a heat pump. And if we don't do that local energy planning, we're gonna be spending a lot of money pointlessly. And as we know, there's not a lot of money to go around. We've got to do that more effectively. It also means that if we have a a proper planning process that's properly inclusive of uh, people who are going to be affected, it makes the whole political process more simple and straightforward in the end as, as people feel like they're buying in. And at the moment, the whole heating transition, low carbon, zero carbon heating transition, is very centrally led. So... There's also that we need more money for uh, boosting these skills in, um, in both the um, electrification of heat pumps and in things like solar installation. I think leave, we need we to uh, see a bit of an initiative kicked off on that. And we need any government help that might be necessary in order to produce a better consumer offer. So particularly advice and support for those people who are thinking about having uh, heat pumps installed in their buildings. Uh, because at the moment, it feels like every householder has to become an expert in coefficients of performance before they uh, they go down the heat pump route. And that's just not a sensible place to be.
0: So there's a whole range of things that you've just mentioned. We'll have to see in the next couple of years how many of those the government do take on. That's all we've got time for today. But uh, Dr. Doug Parr, thank you very much.
1: That was a pleasure. Thanks, Kevin.
0: You've been listening to the podcast from the Foundation for Science and Technology. My guest this week was Dr. Doug Parr, Chief Scientist and Policy Director at Greenpeace UK. You can find more details about the work of the Foundation, including all of our events, all of our blogs and all previous editions of this podcast, at our website at www.foundation.org.uk. Until next time... Goodbye.